Hello and welcome to Start the Beat with Sykes. My name is Sykes and this is my podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank everyone who checked out the last episode. If you're one of the people who listen to that conversation, I hope you enjoyed it and thanks so much for coming back. But for those of you out there who are new to the show, welcome. Please feel free to make yourselves at home. And as always, there's beer and soda in the fridge. So we're a couple weeks into the new year. Things are good. Been playing some shows. They've all gone pretty well. If you were at any of those events, thanks for coming out. And I hope that you and your friends enjoyed yourselves. If you were there with friends, if you were there by yourself, I hope you made a friend. If you didn't make a friend, I hope you still had a good time regardless. And if you had a bad time, I'm sorry. I'll do my best to make it up to you in the future. Anyways, moving along. Let's see what else has been up this past Sunday. I was actually just a guest on my friends, Ben and Greg's podcast, Neon Brainiacs. If you have not checked that show out or ever heard of it, I recommend it. It's an 80s horror podcast. So if you're into 80s horror movies, it's for you. Yes. And I was a guest. We discussed one of my favorite 80s cult classics. I'm not going to spoil what it was because they're not releasing it for a few weeks, but highly suggest you looking them up on whatever podcast service you subscribe to and, uh, you know, checking out their show and keeping an eye out for my stupid face on it. Also, next weekend, January 25th, I'm going to be doing a live episode of Start the Beat with three other podcasts. Neon Brainiacs, who I was just talking about being one of them, and the other two podcasts being The Thrifty Podcast and Ghoul on Ghoul. It's going to be four separate podcasts, one night. Pretty cool, laid back, fun, informative, goofy night with some pretty cool podcasts. If you're interested in coming out to that, this is a public event, but it is at a private address. So I'm not going to publicly disclose that, but you know how to get a hold of me. Shoot me a message and I will let you know where it's at and give you more details about it. You can also look it up on Facebook. There is a event page for the event. It is podcast night at the Tolma, T-O-L-M-A. Check it out. I'm really looking forward to it. You should be too if you're in or around the Pittsburgh area next Friday, January 25th. Is that Friday? I believe it's Friday. I don't think it's Saturday. Whatever the 25th is, that's what day. And speaking of shows, I got a couple other shows coming up besides that. Um, I don't know if I have any listeners in the Michigan area, but Greywalker is going to be spending a couple days out in the Midwest. February 1st, we'll be in Lansing with our friends Heartsick. It's their album release. We're going to be at The Loft. If you're in the area, come out. The day after that, February 2nd, we'll be with Heartsick again in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Mulligan's. We played there last year. It was a really cool spot. Really happy to be back there. And uh, February 8th, Sykes and the New Violence headlining gig at the Smiling Moose in the South Side, Pittsburgh, PA. That's going to be with my uh, friends and guests of the show, BB Guns and Walkman, who has also been on the show, and Abstract Theory, who have not been on Start the Beat yet, but they will be eventually. It's a really cool lineup of all hip-hop acts. It's very rare for me to play an all-hip-hop show. I put this bill together 
I really stand behind all of the artists on this bill. I think they're all crazy talented, awesome performers, and I'm really looking forward to it. So if you want to see some cool hip hop, that's it. February 8th, The Smiling Moose, Sex and a New Violence, BB Guns, Walkman, Abstract Theory. Come out to that. There's more info about it online. Yes. Moving on. Let's see. Uh, addressing the future of the show. The future of Start the Beat. We're into the new year. Been trying out some new things with the show. Uh, still haven't really received any local music submissions. I really haven't been asking outside of the show. Maybe I'll do some posts outside of the podcast to try to get some stuff on the show. If you want your music played, let me know. I'm more than happy to start sharing some stuff in that format through this platform. Uh, still haven't had any bites on any sponsors or anything yet. That's okay. I don't really need it. I'll live. I had uh, some people reach out to me and tell me that the Patreon was a bad idea because they think it's kind of lame. And that's kind of the same boat I was in too, so it's probably not going to happen because eh, whatever. What do I need money for? All this stuff is free, right? This, I didn't have to pay anything for this gear. I don't have to pay anything to host a podcast. Uh, my time isn't worth anything. So yeah, fuck a Patreon, I guess. Moving on. Uh, last episode that was posted was me answering a bunch of listener questions, which is actually a ton of fun. I do want to do that again. So if you have any other topics or questions that you would like to hear me discuss in this format, feel free to keep them coming. And I will eventually get to answering them in a you know, at a, on a, at a later date, if you feel that, you know, my input is important when it comes to anything. And uh, yeah, I think uh, without further ado, we're going to get into this week's episode, which is actually part two of my conversation with my friend, Sid Riggs. If you haven't listened to part one, it's in the backlog. It's a couple episodes ago. Go check it out. It's a really cool conversation about the music industry, Sid's experience working with bands, playing in bands, uh, you know, being a part of the music scene in the Los Angeles area for some time. Uh, some pretty cool stories in uh, part two digs more into all of that. So if you want to listen to part one first, go back and check that out. If you just feel like dealing with part two, that's cool too. You know, whatever you want to do. You're an adult or soon to be an adult, or even if you're not an adult, you know, you could do whatever you want. It's it's your life. Live it how you want. You don't need to do things in order. You are your own boss. It's 2019. Yes. Whatever. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh okay. I think I've rambled far enough. So uh let me shut up and let's get into this week's episode. Sit back, relax. And let's start the motherfucking beat. It's well, entertainment, if in, right? If you're into music and you have an affinity for vinyl, like when you were a kid, then having a music a record store would be awesome. When I was a kid, I. I, you know, it was, it was in a time period where the only thing there was, was like Cream Magazine, Rolling Stone. There was no MTV. There was no internet. So the only thing, the only way to get in contact with music was just to go to a record store. Yeah. And I would go, I would hop on my bike and I would go to like the five record stores that I could ride my bike to. 
And every, like, I would ride to that, you know, to the first record store one day. And I would start at A and just look through every single record in the entire store. And I go, that one's new. What's this? Like, in my head, I had a catalog of the entire, every store. What's new? What is it? And I would, like, check it out. Like, doesn't look interesting. You know, keep going B, C, D. There's a new one. What's this? Yeah. And that's how I found music. I would just go to the record store. And that was my life. It wasn't much different for me, luckily enough. I had an uncle that was a, a big record collector and my dad was really into heavy metal and stuff so i got to be around a lot of music and go to the record stores and you know magazines the internet was barely a thing mm -hmm. and like sampler cds and magazines you know <laughs> finding out about bands and then trying to find those cds in the cd stores growing up that was i grew up around the same thing there mm -hmm. was no you know by the time i was right around the time i graduated high school was about the same time that like downloading music online was a thing like the the napster and LimeWire, mm -hmm. all that stuff was really taking off around that time so but by then i mean i already had like 18 years of record stores in my brain so that's how i've always interacted with it uh -huh. it's so interesting now with record stores it seems that a lot of younger kids are just looking for like you know beatles led zeppelin pink floyd they might be into that but if they're hey, not good in for them, no, that's good. But <laughs> yeah. you know, if they're not into that, I don't know if they're into buying physical media. Mm -hmm. I mean, new artists do put out music, but it might be kind of a, an ironic thing for a young girl to be like, oh, I'm going to college and I want a record player for my dorm. And they got this Taylor Swift record. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really generalizing here, Could but you be, know, though, I, yeah. I feel like that person definitely exists. Yeah. They've been to Urban Outfitters and they exactly. saw, well, there's, you can buy a record player and then have it turn, turn a record into a MP3 for my phone. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Yeah. It, or yeah. So it's, I think a lot of it's, those are kind of the, the biggest demographics of people that I feel are buying records now, people that are buying them just to have like that Taylor Swift record in in the crate, you know, um, in their college dorm. Yeah. Like or like the young kids that are just, you know, they want to, I don't know, they, I want a Beatles record or Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't get into the Beatles all that much when I was young, but even though I say that, when I was real young, my mom took me to the library and, and we didn't have any money. So buying records was difficult. So we went to the library one day and she said to me, you know, you can check records out like books. I'm like, yeah, what? I remember hearing, yeah. And I, so like I, I went, on, like I, it, that was totally foreign to me. So they had like turntables and headphones in the, in the, in the library. And I got Sergeant Peppers and I put it on like, and I don't even know why I chose that. I was so young and I like, put that on like, and I just listened to the whole thing, both sides, like, that's amazing. And it just blew my mind. I, I, you know, checked it out for two weeks and listened to it, you know, nonstop for two weeks. Yeah. But then shortly thereafter, I think I kind of like, like I kind of got into Kiss. So my, my, what could have been like a fascination with the Beatles quickly turned into a fascination with Peter totally. Chris and, and Ace Frehley. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then it was, I'm all in on Kiss. My uncle that was the big record collector, he was a huge Stones guy. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a little bit of Beatles floating around, but he was definitely on like the the Stones camp the of bad things, boys, you yeah. know. And my dad was all about like I always say the three M's: Maiden, Metallica, Megadeth. Like that was his shit. He was like an '80s thrash dude. He was 
my, my, my mom was like 16 when she had me. That was like 17 or 18. So mm-hmm. I'm four or five years old. My dad's in his early 20s. And it's just like, it makes sense. Like, you know, totally. long hair, thrash metal. Like <laughs> yeah, you're just 100%. like percent listening to Number the Beast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally. Actually, it's there's a really funny story where my first grade picture, my dad tried to send me to school like in a trooper t-shirt, Iron Maiden trooper shirt. Did you get in trouble for that or something? No, my mom caught him and then <laughs> ended up sw- swapping out the shirt. I was like, man, that would have been so sick. But I do, I do have my uh, my senior photo. I finally got a senior photo or a school photo in wearing an iron. I'm actually wearing a number of the B shirt in my senior photo. That's the one to wear. Yeah, of all, yeah, of all of them. To me, <laughs> in my mind, yeah, everything after that is cool, but number of the beast is the one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I like number of the beast. Peace of mind's probably my, uh, I would say my top notch made an album. But mm-hmm. that's, I mean, hey, there we're. We're splitting hairs. Well, that whole era, I think, is well. I was listening made to Maiden, you know, like Killers and whatever the the record, you know, whatever. Which one? Those two? Yeah, the self titled and Killers. Yeah, the Paul Diano years. Yeah, yeah. I, I was listening to those before before Number of the Beast, and when I was a kid, like in high school, and and I remember, you know, oh, Maiden got a new singer, and 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 I, I didn't know what to think of that, and then I heard that fucking Number of the Beast track, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That is the baddest ass <laughs> thing I've ever. I just, I just played it over. <laughs> and over and lived it so to me like i have like that that's like a, like one of those heart strings is yeah like number of the beast there was something about early maiden and it had this there was something about the power of like they were they've always been great songwriters but i feel like as they got more technically proficient it kind of snuck into the songwriting and things got like more progressive mm-hmm. and it it changed the band in some ways for the worst. I especially think like in later years now, like, I don't know, we're talking like a, over a, what, a 30, 40 year arc, yeah, right? What do you expect like, you it's know, them to, to do? To maintain awesomeness that Yeah, long. but there is something about that early Maiden that's almost like the adolescent kind of, I don't want to say punk tendency, but it, it kind of had like, like yeah, like like if if metal can have punk rock, then that was like punk metal. You could tell they were definitely from England. Like it yeah, had and that, that. Yeah, it was like tough sounding. It didn't. Uh-huh. It sounded it just sounded like like some do what hits you in the head, like in the face, you know, and just be dirty and have like one tooth. And, and I was like, yeah, those guys are badass. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of the Deanna stuff when I was a kid, but I. As my tastes evolved, it's like I learned to appreciate the early stuff for what it was mm-hmm. and just how like I don't know, it was just I like grimy. I grimy is a good word for it. And I like to look back at records like that and just think what was going on at that time period that that band wrote that set of music like there was no one else writing like that before. Totally. And then there's some dudes, some like 21-year-old kids in a basement someplace just pulling that out of their ass. And you're like, fuck yeah, dudes, that is rad. And so I, I, I always hope that just for music in general, that at any given time, there's some 16-year-old kids just learning how to play their instruments that are so fed up with all of the bullshit that's you know it's being foisted down their throat that's just kind of like whatever, that they're just going to invent some kind of new version of something that's already there and it's just going to blow up and you're going to be like, fuck, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Where did you pull that one out? Killer. And I think of bands like Nirvana, maybe like you know Van Halen one, and, you know, are examples of that. Like, who the fuck was doing that then? It's killer. Yeah, I think that, I'm finally starting to see this interest in young kids about uh, being open to different sounds and 
new things in music, which I think is fascinating because for a while it felt like everybody just wanted to hear more of the same. Mm -hmm. It seemed like new ideas were too challenging in the mainstream. And now I feel like we're in this, uh, this time period where nobody really knows quite what's working. So a lot of people were throwing a lot of really weird stuff at the wall and nothing's quite sticking yet. But I, I think that pretty soon we'll see something new. that's going to be like, Whoa, didn't see that coming. I'm well, excited for it. The, when you use, when you threw the phrase mainstream in there, it made me think, is there really even a mainstream music now? You know, cause mainstream used to like what mainstream would have been in the past would have been the radio stations kind of in collaboration with MTV and that created the mainstream. Fair enough. Yeah. But there really isn't a mainstream now. So now everyone's just kind of like everyone's, like the life rafts are all drifting in opposite directions and someone's trying to figure out how to how to get a paddle to work. Yeah. And and maybe that's good. It, at least it's better than everybody doing the exact same thing yeah, over I, and over again. Yeah, I've always listened to I've never been the type of person that was oh fuck popular music or fuck what's on MTV. I grew mm -hmm. up around that stuff. Oh, me too. Uh but I've always been <clears throat> interested in underground bands as well. You know, I was listening to weird crazy grindcore death metal stuff in you know middle school high school but still like okay slipknot's fucking sweet too like yeah. i liked all of it and there's because of that i feel like i'm always really just happy to see other people that maybe don't have such an underground listening people that just mm -hmm. listen to like very surface level what's on yeah, the radio stuff i'm excited just to see that landscape of whatever is on the radio being so diverse it's very interesting to me it's very unpredictable i like whenever i'm listening to like local rock radio mm -hmm. and there's a song on I'm like why are they playing this i know it's like some people might get mad about it but for me i'm like this is really interesting why are they playing this is this rock music now is this just like a desperate attempt to get people that don't listen to their station normally to listen to it? Yeah, or, or is this just or, like really challenging the yeah, status quo? Does the DJ get two spins an hour and this is the one that he chose? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, however that works. I don't even know anymore at radio what that even looks like. So yeah, who knows? But I, but I, I have hope for a music. There's uh, It's got pretty grim there for a little while. Just every record little physically, literally sounded the same. Same song structure, same concept for what the lyrics are about. You know, it's in rock music. Um, yeah, I feel like with a lot of rock music, guitar-driven music, metal, mm -hmm. it started to, like these albums or these bands were kind of like just more run-of-the-mill Chinese restaurants opening up. Like they all have yeah, the same menu and yeah. the same food. And like, eh, like yeah. I know what this is. It's like, it's good. I got a hankering for some <laughs> Kung Pao chicken right now. I'm going to go put that CD on. That's cool. I feel satisfied. Okay, and now I can go do something else. Yeah, but it doesn't like <laughs> really resonate much more past that. Yeah. And, you know, you being somebody that has spent time behind the production board in studios recording bands, you've probably saw this evolution happen from a like a behind the curtain standpoint for sure yeah i saw a lot of conversations behind the scenes you know like decision making that would go on that in, in hindsight you're like yeah that's 
I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that. And sometimes you're not in a position really to say anything. If you're an engineer on a record, it's really not your position to go in and say, hey, producer and A&R guy and president of label, you guys are all out of your gourds. You know? Yeah. You're making a dumb decision here. That That's slime. But as an engineer, you're just like, I, my, my job is to get great tones and engineer this record and just you know get some free lunch out of the deal. Uh-huh. But uh, you don't have much input after that. And you probably shouldn't. That's what the producer's for. He's the ringleader. Yeah. I've been really fascinated, particularly in metal, with how tech. We may have talked about this before, but we didn't have microphones recording, so mm-hmm. we may have a repeat conversation. And I apologize. Good. No, that's fine. Uh, I've been really fascinated with how advancements in recording technology mm-hmm. has forced heavy metal to evolve. Where do you or see do that you think happen? that it's a reverse? Where like because with heavy metal. Everybody wants to be faster, louder, more technically crazy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think are you familiar with bands like like Rings of Saturn? I've Have heard you, of a lot of those bands, yeah. but I haven't heard of Well, they're many like these crazy technical we'll just say like technical death metal, very mm-hmm. technical progressive heavy metal. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have been like really possible to record those bands. 25 years ago and get it to sound the way that it needs to well, Versus, 25 years ago you wouldn't have had you wouldn't have had pro tools you know and and pro tools makes that possible um and i don't mean that's not disparaging to pro tools it's awesome that's the system that's the yeah. point all that i work but pro tools allows you to go in there and you know, do 57 passes in playlists yeah. edit every you know comp everything together and then once you're there then edit it you know but on a di totally. put it lock it up to a grid yeah so like i think for a while we'll say in the you know in the 2000s was when it started to get like crazy and you're hearing these albums that are just they're almost heavy metal albums in that time frame i've view them more as like electronic music albums. Uh, yeah, because they are, really. They are, totally. And, but what happened that's really cool now, where we're, you know, coming into 2019, it's been a couple decades of this really crazy produced metal. You're starting to see these kids on like YouTube that are growing up around this, and they think that playing like that is normal. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing these prodigy guitar players yeah. that are like, and when they're young and developing, they're forcing themselves to learn how to play these things that I don't even think the people that played those records even played. Mm-hmm. Like it was all digitally touched up to make it sound perfect. Well, and now these kids are like, well, they played it. So now I need to play it. And you have these crazy talented young bands now that are they have the talent to play and the technology to make it sound even better. And it's just continuing to evolve everything. And that's what I'm talking about. Well, one of the things that I think about, I mean, you you know, you said the YouTube kids, they grow up in, a, in an era where anywhere on YouTube, you can learn how to play anything. Yeah. But if you go back 25 years, there was no internet. There was no kid sitting in his bedroom in Des Moines, Iowa, watching videos of his favorite guitar players, showing him all the techniques on how to be really good. Totally. He was just learning how to do it, clunking over and maybe getting a little bit better, but not getting very far. And maybe having little, you know, bursts of getting better, but just by diligently practicing. Now, 
because, and it's great, I think it's awesome. Now, if you are learning how to play an instrument, you just live in your bedroom on YouTube, just learning how to play everything. And and instead of like fighting it out, trying to figure out how to do it right and making mistakes with technique or, you know, and that would slow you down. Now you can just go, you just boom, right there. Like that's how you do it right. And you just, you just, that was six months of, of drudgery yeah. that I learned in five minutes. The only problem with that though is the, potential risk of not developing your own voice sure because you have all of these kids learning from each other and i think a big part of it's like being an artist or even a chef you know it's like you can cook from a recipe or draw you know learn how to do proper shading but without your own technique it's hard to create something that's really your own and sometimes it's those struggles that give you that voice i agree totally and um with like proficiency in music, I think it reaches a critical mass to where it really just doesn't matter anymore. You know, how much faster is a fast double bass riff? How much faster is a shredding lead? Does it even really matter? It's cool that kids can do it, but really in the end of the day, the kid who's going back to buy the Beatles record or the Pink Floyd record, he, there's not a single shred on any of any of that. It's just like, that's emotion. And it's vibe and it fa- feels emotional and vibey. And, and I think that it's like the critical mass, maybe, you know, you know, music always goes like, you know, way over here and then people just get tired of it and it pushes like something blows up over here that is the complete antithesis and then that gets passe and then it blows it up all the way over here. So maybe what happens is all these, you know, these guys just shredding out of their minds. There's always going to, there'll always be somebody left doing the previous thing. That maybe people just get okay. It just doesn't matter anymore, you know. Like if I can play five BPM faster than the guy before me. It just doesn't matter. I don't. And I don't. And, and maybe maybe it maybe it opens up to just cooler songwriting, and then somehow sneak sneaking the you know the shreddery into there. I think that it's just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it mm-hmm. or do it all the time. Yeah. Like, well, I could talk like this, but it doesn't mean I should talk like this all the time. Yeah. You know, right? People like, or you could talk really fuck? fast. Yeah. yeah. Like, why the fuck is he doing that, yeah. right? Because I can. But like, I don't know. Like, don't well, do that. I've, I've always personally enjoyed music that just has more of a vibe. That's just, you know, cool sounding. And and that's not always heavy. Like, like I like all kinds of things. My favorite Absolutely. artist right now is probably St. Vincent. Yeah. But like, I like everything from, you know, like Portishead to, you know, to Meshuggah. I would just throw something in the middle there. If it's a good version of it, I probably like it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it could be anything. Um, but I always tend to like things more that just have a vibe and just have a cool vibe. I think that that's really important when it comes to songwriting. It's just like what... Yeah, what vibe or what atmosphere am I trying to put the listener in with this song? Yeah. You know, I think that sometimes being a songwriter, it's really easy for like ego to get in the way and just be like, oh, I have this big point that I want to make or I just want to do something that's really heavy and going to get people charged up, which I guess is a vibe to be fair. So maybe I should should take that one back. But I think that there's just like this there's a nuance that goes into it where I think that you need to be very just selfless in a way with writing music while but i mean obviously it needs to be somehow selfish or not hmm, i don't know i never really thought about this in this way so i'm kind of working it out in my brain i do that all the time but uh <laughs> yeah there, that's just i think being less i think oh, i'm just gonna leave it at for now i think being less selfish when creating art leads to a a better product well maybe it's this 
and I'm, I'm trying to work it out too right now. Maybe it's if you lack if you lack a, a really good ability to write a good song. Yeah, and what is a good song anyway? You and I are going to have differing opinions on that. But if you're not very good at writing songs, then you have to compensate with riffery and shreddery. And if that's if that's how you write a song, then that's all you got. And until you can figure out a way to write a chord structure and a riff and simple it down, then have it still have just as much impact. Um, that that's like the craft of songwriting. Sure. The thing that oh man, I get it. You get it a lot with metal, and I try. I definitely went through my progressive metal phase, and there are still some bands that I think are great. But I also am such a stickler for song structure. And there's a lot of stuff that I see. It happens a lot in metal where it's just like heavy part into heavy part into heavy part. And it's just like, you're not like, these are just parts. Yeah. Well, uh, is it, but it's like, I guess it's a composition <laughs> technically, but like, I don't know. I just want a fucking song. Well, I, I I think that heavy part should open up into something a little more open. Dynamic. Whatever that looks like. You know, a yeah. heavy song is going to look different than in a ballad. But, you know, something like your meat riff, like your hook, which is, you know, where the, the crowd is on fire. And then you settle down into a verse where the vocal can take over. But it's still interesting and cool. And then back into a heavy riff, you know, like it's got to go like from here to here. It's got to take me like my mind on a journey. If it's just like for five minutes straight from like, you know, getting pummeled on the side of my head and then getting pummeled over yeah. here and then getting pummeled under here and, you know you i think you have a lot of musicians too i mean i've played in metal bands for a good chunk of time now where it's always an issue with guitar players that it's like you do understand there's other people in this band <laughs> <laughs> you know but like you can say that for a metal drummer too <laughs> totally <laughs> it's like you gotta we gotta figure out how to like it, it, it's like everybody wants to be on 100 it all the time to, mm -hmm. you know, really showcase their ability. And, you know, you get that thing where it's like, well, this is kind of easy to play. So, you know, it's not technical enough. So it's not good. And it's like, you're out of your fucking mind. If you, if it's easy for you to play, that means cool. If it's easy to play and it sounds good, let's roll with it because that means it's easy to, to wrap your head around. Yeah. And that and means we could play it live and we can yeah. record it easily. And like, <laughs> but also it means that it means that the other 95% of metal fans who aren't the world's best shredding guitar players are probably going to like it. It's going to hit them in that's, the chest and it's going to be a rip that sounds, fuck yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And then, you know, come out of it, go into a solo and fucking just rip the shit that, out of it. That goes back into, you know, being not so selfish when songwriting, kind of the thought that I was having earlier. Because I think a lot of that wanting to be very just flashy in your songwriting, well, I, I mean, I'm into that just as much as anybody else when it's tasteful. A lot of the time it's just like, I want to show everybody how good I am at my thing. And it's like, that's cool, but if you, it's... I don't know. If you put a piece well, of gold in a pile of shit, it's still like, nobody's going to want to touch it. <laughs> well, I think, like, I'm into hooks. Like, I want totally. something to hook me. Yeah. But when I say hooks, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't mean like, you know, Taylor Swift hooks. I mean, like, a, a Slayer hook is a hook is still a hook, you know, and a, you know, and a Pat Benatar hook is a hook. Yeah. Every, yeah. every version of a band has hooks. So I'm just into hooks. Like, I'm gonna, I want to hear something and just go, fuck yeah, I can, like, I'm, I'm going to turn that song off and I'm going to still hear that fucking riff in my head. And I won't have to, I won't have to hear it 75 times to understand what the hell was going on. I just go, that was fucking badass, man. And I, and that's a hook to me. Yeah. And, and I'm into hooks. So, you know, if it's a heavy band and they've got like one rad hooky riff that's kick ass and just like, like face melting, 
I'm into it, but it's got to be a hook. It's got to be hooky. Like I still want it to hook me in. Yeah, it's like a chocolate chip cookie is good, but you know the the bites that have the little extra bit of chocolate in it are like, yeah, that's the fucking bite. But you want the whole cookie. You don't want just one. You don't want the bite that's just the good bite. Because that good bite isn't as good without the rest of it. Yeah, I'm thinking like, so what What would you think are maybe like some of like the most seminal metal tracks of all time? Like, what would you think they are? You know, and not from the, you know, from the, you know, from the kid who's in his basement, you know, this has to be the most progressive thing in the world. But like, just in general, what would you think some of them are? I'm, so, only, I'm only asking to prove a point. That's, that's a hard question. You know, there are... Some things that definitely come to mind, uh, Raining Blood yeah, is one, probably The Trooper is mm-hmm. one, or Run to the Hills, like yeah. a lot of that classic Maiden yeah, stuff. Yeah, maybe like uh, Enter Breaking Sandman, the law. yeah. But my point, all of those songs, there's kind of a riff there that oh, you can definitely. walk away remembering. Yeah. And and those are the ones that have stood the test of time that we're still we can still refer to them. And those are the ones that are filling stadiums for Slayer still. And you know, and Maiden can pack an arena yeah. still. It's because of those. It's really because they were writing kick-ass metal tracks, but they had hooks in them in their version of a hook. Yeah. You know, they weren't trying to like throw a, you know, a you know, a Taylor Swift into the middle of a of a Slayer song. Well, I think that what makes people connect with music is just that ability to have something that hooks them and sticks with them and they can relate to and something they think is catchy and they can just hum along and go to a show and like, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the stuff gets a little bit too crazy. I think you, I, there are definitely people that find crazy stuff catchy. Well, There's some people whose brains work like that, but if we're just talking they're in general, it's, it's a smaller, it's a smaller pocket, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that, I guess the point that I'm thinking in my head is like, I'm, if you're genuinely wanting to make this crazy progressive all over the place stuff, and that's like your passion. Great. But there are some times when I just come across bands where it just feels like, Oh, this is just like a total wank fest. And I don't understand. I just, I don't see the appeal. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't like, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of wank fest, but I do. Uh, I, I just realized as I was saying that it kind of might've sounded like a curmudgeon, but I'm not at all. I, I do appreciate guys who can just shred the fuck out of shit. Cause I was a, as a performer, as a drummer, I was never like a shredding, you know, I, that was, I was never good at it. So maybe I'm a little bit bitter cause guys could just kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's not really it. It's just, I, 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 I ended up playing in a way I wanted to hear. Like I liked, that's the kind of drumming I like to hear on tracks I like. So I played the way I like to hear. Like I yeah. played what I wanted to hear. So I'm, well, I'm going to play that. I yeah. like the way that sounds. And also in a time, because, I mean, you mentioned before to me, you haven't played drums in a band. It's been like over a decade now, maybe longer, I'm guessing. I haven't played a live show since 2002. Okay. So it's so been some time, 17 right? years almost. So yeah. like, I'm curious about like what was some of the most, I guess there was some people probably doing some pretty crazy stuff drum wise back then. Like, I don't think, I think crazy drumming was something that was a lot more relevant before uh crazy guitar playing became a thing at least in heavy music well like when i grew up you know like rush neil pert you know like like i grew up on bonham and neil pert 
And then, you know, those are my guys and Ian Pace from Deep Purple. But, you know, it was really Bonham and Neil Peart. And so Neil Peart was, you know, like pushing the envelope at then. Now, when you listen to Neil Peart, you're like, oh, that's pretty, it's pretty standard. It's pretty rudimentary. But at the time, it was really going forward. Yeah. And, um, and, um, but then I kind of like backed into just loving playing just big, fat, hard beats. And so that's just, you know, like I, I, I ended up being way more of a Bonham drummer than I ever was a Neil Peart drummer. And all of the bands I was in, that was perfect because that's exactly what it needed to be. It didn't need me to be something else. Even when I was playing with Halford's band, um, we had done the two record and we were we were going back in the studio to write new songs and we weren't going to do another version of a two record. It was going to be Halford, you know, the name two was going to go away. John Five had joined Manson at the time. And um, so it was just going to be, we were bringing in new guitar players and it was going to be a brand new band. It was just going to be called Halford. It was going to be heavy again. Yeah. And, you know, and then, and then, and, and it was going to, you know, it was going to be, you know, it was going to be Scott Travis drumming. Which is really not the kind of drumming I do. I just do a totally different thing. And at that same time period, I had an opportunity to join Sinistar, which is going to be, you know, you know, eventually signing with Geffen Records. So you know, I, I just went, well, I'm going to go do Sinistar, and because that's I get to play like I want to, as opposed to me being able to play Scott Travis drumming. But it's not really what I naturally do. Yeah. So I just told Rob, you should find a drummer who naturally plays like that as opposed to just bending me into it. Mm -hmm. And I'll go do this thing that I think is really rad. And you should get a guy who thinks what, you know, that kind of drumming is rad and everyone will win there. I know it's something that a lot of people probably don't notice, but I can I can sense when somebody is playing something that's not in their wheelhouse. Oh yeah, totally. Like even if they are playing the songs technically, it's just there's something about like their posture. And like their overall like essence where it's like, oh, you are not, this is not what you do. It's like going to see a cover band. Sure. You listen sure. to, you listen to four <laughs> sets of them doing someone else's music and you go, you did a proficient job of recreating every one of those songs, but at no point was it any, was it exciting at all? Uh-huh. It was just like I could yawn through all of that. Yeah. Just like the uncertainty and uncomfortableness and just like lack of form a lack of giving a fuck too yeah like oh i'm just going through the rope motion you're supposed to do this thing here then you hit that thing here and then you do a fill that goes like that i don't really care for that fill. well that's what the song calls for uh-huh versus like i'm i love every single hit i'm doing here you know whether it's you know just straight whether it's phil rudd from acdc you know or you know how do you feel about acdc drum the rhythm section of ACDC. You know what? On the way over here, literally, I was listening to Highway to Hell. <laughs> <laughs> coming up the hill. And yeah. Coming up the hill, I was listening to Highway to Hell. Um, but um, I think that's great. Uh, to me, a good drummer is a drummer that if you take him out of the band and replace him with somebody else, the band falls apart. Oh, yeah. So Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones, if you put another drummer in there, the stones fall apart. It's not the stones anymore. If you put Neil Peart, in in ACDC, it would sound retarded. And if you put Phil Rudd in Rush, it would sound ridiculous. So Absolutely. If, to me, a good drummer is a guy who b literally brings something to that band that if you pulled him out, it would all be whacked. It wouldn't work anymore. Uh -huh. So that's a good drummer to me. And that and you know and a guy like Phil Rudd from ACDC and that rhythm section those guys are solid. They can't not do what they do yeah. and have ACDC work. If they do anything other than what they do, ACDC doesn't work. Yeah, I love the the power of restraint that that band has held they just for their entire back. fucking career. Yeah. Like it it just it's so 
awesome. And just the precision of those two rhythm guitar players playing together. I mean, obviously they're the, locked in. I mean, they've been playing together their whole lives, and it just sounds great. Um, There's another thing, like uh, a lot of people say the same thing about Metallica and just how well they lock in live and just the little just nuances of just groove changes and things. They're just fucking on it. Yeah. When you play with the same guys forever, and even if that drummer is Lars, <laughs> but you, 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 yeah. you learn to wiggle in and out of that and it sounds cool. And, you know, even if he's playing drum fills, we're like, what song are you playing? Are you playing the same song as everybody else? I also think there's a, an interesting thing in like how transparent a band like ACDC is in a live environment mm -hmm. where say there's a band that's playing faster, heavier, louder. If there's a flub, yeah, it, you can, you go can right, skate by it a lot of the right time. But that, you know, if yeah. there's a flub in an ACDC set, it's I'm sure that shit fucking sticks out like a goddamn you Absolutely. Know, sore thumb. Man. You shouldn't be flubbing those tracks. <laughs> 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 you know, speaking of things that are, but I I I almost I and I've so bit my tongue to so I almost said speaking of things that are easy to play. But they're not easy to play. They're easy to play the notation, like kick, snare, kick, snare, but there's a pocket. Like that Phil Rudd pocket, uh, almost, it's I, almost impossible. I, it's like trying to play Bonham. You can play all the same notes. You can hit every, but it doesn't sound like Bonham. It doesn't sound like him. Yeah, there's because uh, there's nuances in like you know the velocity of your hits. It's yeah, almost the, like hi, you the hi hat, the way the hi hat is slightly behind the kick and snare, and and everything's just dragging a little bit, and then it pushes here. Like you can't. That's and he can't. That's how he plays. Yeah, he's not trying to do that. He just naturally does it's that. His natural voicing. So, yeah, so from... he can't not do that. That so it works perfect for him. And I feel like you would almost need to be like in like some sort of a trance almost to kind of just lock into like those rhythms that are very i don't know if i find myself if i were to picture myself behind a drum kit playing i it would be so hard for me to not want to like like you know throw in some extra little flares or things <laughs> to keep myself entertained but there is a kind of my, my my style when i was playing and the bands i was in was you know it, it wasn't tons of drum fills um you know it was like lock into a pocket and I play hard, lock into a pocket, you know, fills were appropriate when they were appropriate. But it is kind of like that. You kind of lock into a thing like, you know, and, you know, your whole body is like kind of churning in something you're doing. And it just, you're just, it's just, yeah, it is kind of like locking into a trance. Yeah, that's how I f imagine it must be for uh, uh, Thomas from Meshuggah. Yeah, that guy. Is, that guy. <laughs> like, like, I, I was listening to that earlier too. Other level. Like it's <laughs> it's it's so fascinating. Um, watching them live is just very. You know, that's I imagine seeing them live that I would just be like, oh, this is awesome. Just kind of like this, but no, I was like eyes open, just like the yeah, whole time. I, I watch videos of him playing online. <laughs> like I, was, I was like. Wow. Like, yeah, I watch videos of him playing online. It looks so effortless for him. But then I listened to him in an interview, and he was talking about one of the tracks on one of their records. It was kind of one of their premiere tracks. I can't remember which one it was. And he said it took him six months to learn how to play it good. Like, he came up with the part, and it took him six months of straight practicing to get it good enough to play it on a record. And so then when you see him just playing it, it just looks effortless, and it's all, you know, whatever the hell those rhythms are. <laughs> you know, but they all tie together with his right hand. Like everything ties together on that right hand mm -hmm. and everything else is moving around. And that's the thing that holds everything together. And, uh, but you just watch it go, it, 
that doesn't even look like yeah okay oh. I see exactly what he's doing there, but it's, it's still it's, it's more still of a, it's, out. yeah it's more of a numbers thing and I think like making your brain count in a way that it might not normally count as I was what I think is really fascinating about Mashuga because I think that there isn't a whole lot of like crazy fast things no. or technical fills it's very when things are happening it's there's only you know like a few instruments or a few drums kind of like being hit you know it's not over the top yeah but it's he's just, not it's the he's counting not, that's he's not wailing down a tom or he's got one rack tom and well, two I think floors and the counting and i think it's um the repetitiveness like the trance-ness of those things i think that being able to lock into that weird count and keep it up consistently for as long as they do, because they have like some very long songs. Well, you know what? Is also, what makes it like the stamina is what I find impressive. Well, they do a weird count and then they and then they change the count. So oh it's yeah, like, yeah. Like it, like one little one little passage is one count, and the next one is a different one, and then it goes back to the first count, then it goes to a different count, and then it does the first count twice again. You know, it's like they're all in and out. They're all like weaving in and out. They still have an interesting way of being able to bring parts back around, create hooks in their own way yeah. and have like a solid song structure. It's not just like part, 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 crazy, crazy, crazy. You know, it all ends up making sense at the end. Yeah. I like that band a lot. I think they're really cool. They're fun to listen to, but I can't, they, they actually, they overwhelm me after a while. I can only oh, listen totally. to them for about 20 minutes. Sure. Like if I'm in my car, I turn it up and it, and it sounds great in my car stereo. I'm like, fuck, this is badass sounding. And then after about 20 minutes, I'm like, I'm going to get in a car wreck. I got to turn yeah. this off. <laughs> yeah. Like when we saw them, it was just like feeling it like in your chest. It was a very intense experience. That's, I haven't had, I'd like to see I haven't them. had I haven't a whole them. lot of live experiences like that, but they were definitely one of those bands. that was like, this is, this is otherworldly. Like I feel this was this is what a live performance is about. That's cool. But what's so interesting though is that like there there could be a band just as good as them, right? Playing the same songs, but if it wasn't in the right live environment, you know, like in a room surrounded with subs and all this stuff, it wouldn't translate in the same way. Which is like a really interesting thing, kind of where we're at with Greywalker right now, mm -hmm. um, in playing shows and being picky and choosy about shows we play, which I think is normal for bands, but we're kind of picky about venues because we I've come to notice this thing where if we're playing a place where there isn't a stage or a good PA, it doesn't come off right. It's like there are some bands that thrive in that environment. But for us, it's like you're not getting the right representation. It just ends up looking weird. It looks like this cheap dollar store version of what we're supposed to do. Yeah, and I, 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 I agree with that. And I think you're right to to feel that way. And I think you're right to want to have your band be represented as well as possible. You know, I, I I don't agree with bands' mentalities where, you know, like where they almost think it's they almost think it's a bad thing to want to push and be better and, you know, get good and, and, you know, and rise, kind of rise and you become the cream of the crop, so to speak. I mean, some bands, they, they almost think that that's a bad thing. Yeah. Like, no, it, that's the good thing. I don't think it's so much that. I mean, I agree with that. But I also think it's a thing where it's just like, you know, understanding where your place is as a band and how you want to be represented. Because, like, there's some – I'm a huge fan of, like, grimy punk stuff. I don't want to see Grammy punk stuff on a big stage with nice lights. Like I want to see that, yeah, that in the venue with, you know, the not there. so great PA yeah. on a floor. I want that to be like sweaty and in my face, but that's not exactly what Greywalker is. 
And I don't know if a lot of people think about those differences all the time and like how the places they're choosing to play, how that's like representing their whole band. And like, I think bands for people should, that have never yeah. seen you before. Well, that's, that's a great point right there. Cause I, I talk to young bands all the time when I, you know, when I was producing records and even now when I'm developing bands and I, I say, and I just had this conversation with some guys who were just getting ready to leave for tour. Like they were, they were leaving my studio. They're going on tour the next day. And I said, Hey guys, like one word of advice before you leave is that you're going to go play a tour. You may do event, you may play someplace where there's 20 people and 10 of them are the staff of the bar. You can't, but you've got to play your best set you've ever played for those 20 people, because that's the only time they're ever going to see you. Yeah. And, and you've got to give every show all you've got. There's no throwaway shows ever. If you're out playing live, you are performing possibly for the first time that someone's ever going to see you. And if you just phone it in, you're like, ah, there's only 10 people here. Fuck it. We don't really care. No, that's... they will fucking, you will suck. They will think you suck. You will never, they yeah. will, you'll have lost a fan. Yeah. You want, you always have to play and choose your venues to, to, to be the best version of yourself yeah. always, no matter mm -hmm. who is there, no matter how dead or rowdy the crowd is, you've got to crush it. You got to know that you're trying your hardest at every single gig. On tour, it can be hard, especially if you're up and coming to really pick and choose your venues. But if you do have the opportunity to do so, like we do locally, I think it's really crucial. But, you know, again, if you're touring and you're playing to, you know, 15 people, I think that you want those people to leave, like telling their friends, like, oh, you fucked up not coming yeah, to that totally. show. That's exactly. You want them to say, dude, man, I saw this band. They crushed it. There was only 15 people there. And they, they played, played like it was 150,000. Yeah. They were bad. They were badass crushing it, man. I will totally go see them again. That's what you got to leave people with that, no matter where you're playing. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can never phone gigs in ever, 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 especially when you're a younger band. Because that's the one and last chance you're going to get to play for whatever people are in that room. It's it's interesting. There's a lot of talk that comes up in the local scene here, and I'm sure it's not much different in other towns, uh, but just underground thing where um, people are talking about venues and how, uh, like, oh, I don't want to play this place because of X, Y, and Z, and I guess I'm kind of doing that right now. But the thing that always fascinates me is about like how some bands come up because sure we have, I think we have a good punk scene cause there's a lot of venues that can facilitate it. We have a, a good hardcore scene cause there are venues that can facilitate it. And the metal scenes like it's kind of, they're good metal bands, but I don't think we necessarily have the strongest metal scene cause there isn't really the right venue for it. And then I think more about like, even like say bands that, what they want to do is radio rock. Like there's a band that wants to be the next, I don't know. It wants uh, to be the next Nickelback. Sure. Yeah. Where do they start? Mm -hmm. Bars? Is that it? Like how do you, like a band that's like a big production if rock you, band that needs that big stage to get their thing across. Well, again, it, it, if, if I met some guys and they, and they wanted to do that, like we really want to be, you know, the next three doors down or next Nickelback or, you know, plug in your next whatever band. Um, I would say, well, you, well, you get, first off, you need, you need crushing radio songs. You know, you need first off, so you need to be writing, 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 writing. Don't even worry about playing gigs. Yeah. You just need to be writing. You need to be recording, writing, recording, recording. And until, and until you get those crushing radio songs, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what, 
what your live show is because you don't have the crushing radio songs to go be Nickelback anyway. Yeah, that's so you point. need to be writing, writing, writing. And once you get a handful, maybe four, you know, pretty good songs where you're like those, those are good. Then you need to you you would need to get a producer and start you know working. That's a totally different game. Like you don't come up through the clubs. Sure, and that you then you you. You get a producer, you so, track those things as good as you can, you hire a lawyer, is that and, something and you, that, you, you, you try to get a deal for it, you, you, know, you, you backdoor it in. Is that something that you like had experience with totally. and saw bands do? Yeah, yeah. Like even bands that were, we'll just say it, like, like disconnected, like, like, like just random dudes that are musicians or ladies, whatever, mm-hmm. um, that are like, hey, like, you know, you don't know who we are, but this is a band, these are our, like, kind of our songs can we work on something to build this big product? Well, is that a, do you think that still happens now? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I think it does. And, and, and the way it happens is if, if you're a band and you think that you are doing something that really can kind of fit in that niche, what you do is you, you make some demos that are really good. Then you literally just, I mean, the internet is amazing. Now you, you say what producers produce those Nickelback records. I'm just going to go straight to those guys. Yeah, and say, hey, can you know what's it cost you know to get you to to produce one of these tracks and and maybe you know help help us shop a deal and you know, and if we get a deal then you can produce the record and you get three points on the deal and part of the record and and you help us get a record deal and producers do that all the time yeah you know bands go straight to them or the band or the producer you know in between records we, I did it all the time when I was you know working professionally when you're in between you know label label records you're looking for a new band to develop and you know and you're going to help them get a record deal and then you know you get them a record deal you produce the record you know everybody's happy they get their major deal you do another record and we we did it all the time and you know bands would come out and hunt us down because of the kind of records we made bands that sounded like that would come our way and you know how often do you think it but a lot of times the bands aren't good enough. Yeah. I was gonna, so, you know, I'm it's like, it's not like it's not like every band that comes your way, you can go, oh my God, you're going to totally be the next Nickelback. Yeah, that was kind of like, going to be my question was going to be like, in your experience, did you see any bands that like were able to kind of follow through with that? Or was it just like bands that almost had it and then just something wasn't quite in there? Mainly, uh, mainly, mainly yeah, the latter. I imagine that's the majority. I have friends locally and not locally that have you know gone out of town to record albums with producers that have worked on bigger rock albums and things like that and i think that's kind of it it seems like a lot of the experiences that from people i know that i've talked to that have done that they are able to yeah get you know get a hold of the producers or these people and get working with these people but then it doesn't seem like a lot of the producers have any real interest in actually developing them. It's more or less just like, oh, this is a small paycheck in between other things. Like, I'm going to record your stuff. Here's your songs. Put my name on it. But like, I'm not going to, there's no real help past that. In in some cases, for sure, that. In, in other cases, though, uh, producers will, and, and we did this, me and Bob Marlette did this, where we would find bands, you know, that, we would we would say you guys are cool. We would like to work with you. Think we can help you get a record deal, and but what we'll do is we will we'll just make the record on our dime. You don't pay us anything. Um, we'll we'll make the record our dime. We'll give you the record at yours. We'll shop it and you release it at the same time simultaneously, and we'll split everything fifty fifty. And 
So right away, like if you don't know anything about a record deal, you think, wow, 50, 50, that's rough. Well, a record deal is 88, is 88, 12. So 50, 50 is a fucking way better split than 88, 12 for <laughs> yeah, a band. Absolutely. And, and, um, and there's no recouping because we said we'll absorb the cost of making this record. So you sell 10 CDs, the first 10 CDs, that's, that's 10 CDs of sales that we're going to split. And there's no recouping. And we'll try to get the thing. We'll try to get it signed. And if we can get it signed, then we'll we'll go in and fix the record. We'll re-record it, and then you know, and then we'll have a budget there to do some stuff. And we'll we'll split the budget 50-50. You know, and, and everyone will come out. The record's basically done anyway already. And um, and then and then you know, then you guys are now signed to a major deal. You know, with an eighty-eight twelve split. <laughs> but you got the major deal you were after. Yeah. And, you know, and and then or they would just go out and sell that record on their own, and you know, and split with this fifty-fifty, and. So in some instances, that's the kind of deal. I think that's the better model. And I think it's really the better model for the music industry that we live in today. Because if you are a band and your idea, you know, if, if you still think that the lore of the major record deal is is the ultimate game, which it might be for, for some bands. Sure. I, I'm not saying that's the right or wrong thing to do. But, but realize major label deals like they are now are a whole hell of a lot different than they were mm -hmm. 15, 20 years ago. They're 360 deals. The label gets a piece of everything. They get your publishing, some yeah. of your merch, some of your live, some, you know, your record royalties, which you were never going to make any money off record royalties really anyway, unless you're Metallica, you know, like, did you ever see the 30 seconds to Mars movie? This will be war. No, this is war. It's amazing. It, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a documentary about them making that record. This is war. I think that's what it's called. But it's at the same time that they are they are suing their record label. Their lab, the label sued them for like twenty million dollars. Okay, and then they're counter suing their label. Then at the end, and and it just shows how fucked up a major deal is. And at the end, it's like it's a little blip, you know. They're you know like you know kind of at the end of the record, you're like so and so is doing this, so and so is doing this. But it's like it's like thirty seconds tomorrow is a soul five or six million records, and they still haven't recouped. You know, they're still that's fucking underwater crazy. to their label. Yeah, I feel like I can see the the eighty eight twelve format working if you're like this huge artist that has huge production costs. Like if you're somebody like a Taylor Swift or something, or Metallica, like you have these stadium tours and like you're on a bus and you got like there's so many other people working to make this thing happen. It's not like you're just driving yourselves around in a van across the country. You know what I well, mean? You don't even need to be Taylor Swift or Metallica. I mean, you, just touring. Like when I was in Sinistar, for instance, you know, that band never really blew up, but we were on Geffen Records. You know, we made our record. We went on a tour. We toured a bunch even before our record was out. And, you know, and you don't make any money touring. You know, you're on a major label. You got a bus and two, you know, two dudes on a road crew and a tour manager who's your front of house guy. So you're taking out three guys, five dudes in a band, a bus driver. You're in for ten or twelve thousand a week in expenses. Yeah. But you're making 150 bucks a night playing a gig. <laughs> so your label is footing the other bill. Yeah. You know, that's who's covering that. Um, so you know, even to just tour at the most basic level with a with a with a bus and a trailer. You know, without even a gigantic production, just, you know, we're going to throw our gear up in front of your gear. We're opening up for you just to take that out with a bus. It's, you know, it's 10 grand a week. And so uh -huh. it, you got, someone's got to pay for that. That's what your label pays for. That's why it's 8812. Yeah. And that just goes on yeah, your that, recoup bill. Yeah. That, that's like, that's kind of what I was getting at. It's like, I could see if like, if you're at a level where you need that, it, but like, I think well, like, there's still, I feel like there's probably bands now 
that are driving themselves around that don't have a bus that are probably stuck in deals like that. And I imagine that's a fucking nightmare. Well, here's an here. Like we discussed before, I stopped working professionally, professionally making records in 2008. And it was really mainly, and I only made records for six years as a, you know, in production and engineering. Yeah. Because before that I was in rock bands. I was, you know, I was in, you know, I was in a band with Rob Halford. I was in Sinistar. And, and in 2002, I, you know, I played my last gig and I said, I'm going to go do production now, you know? And, um, so only from 2002 to 2008 did I make records. And, and then in that small window, that was, you know, a couple of years after the beginning of Napster, and in that small window, I saw our label, I saw our budgets for label deals. You know, we're going to make a record for a, you know, a band on a label. That budget's going to be about a half million dollars. And I saw it go down to like 50,000 for a similar band. And down like 50,000, that's 90% reduction in budget. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And I'm like, fuck this, peace the fuck out. Because then there's like what what's left for you at the well, end of all that, right? Well, really what it was... We were the ones that got paid as the producers. The band got nothing. Okay. Yeah. So if if you think that you got a half million dollars to make a record, you know, and it's two thousand, and you got a half million dollars to make a record, band's going to take a piece of the top of that front end, and they're going to split it as an advance. So say they take a hundred grand, five guys each get twenty thousand dollars, and you think, well, that's not a ton of money, but it's cool. You, you can know, live off it for for a, a while year, while yeah. you're recording and writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the money you're going to have. That's it. Yeah. And then you got four hundred grand for the for the record. Your producer's going to get seventy five. Your engineer's going to get maybe thirty. You're going to spend another hundred in studio sunk cost and mixing and everything. So maybe you're two hundred grand into the you know, into the production of your record. Now you're 300 in because you took 100 and 300 and you only had 500 to start with. And you got to make your budget, your video and stuff out of that. And then whatever's left at the end, you get to split it in the band, the back end. But really, so everyone was getting paid. The band was getting some money. And, and but, you know, and the studios were making money. The bands were making money. And now do all of that for 50000 <laughs> Like the band, first off, the band gets nothing. They, yeah, there's, there's no front end or back end for the band. It's totally shitty yeah, for like, them. Like here's here's two thousand dollars. Not even Good that. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> if you take two thousand dollars and give it to the band, then you know, the, and the band has to make this decision. That's two thousand less dollars we have to make our record. Yeah, and and you know, and w that might be mastering. You know, that that could be who knows what it is. But so, yeah, that's that's a rough. Major deals now, gee, I, I I feel so bad for the bands coming up now. Um, well, I, I feel bad and, and I feel a little bit of solace in that young bands who are like 18 now, they don't really know the lore of what it used to be like. You'd get a you'd sign a major deal. It, that was a major big deal. Yeah. And, and, and it meant a lot back then. But now you sign a major deal and, you know, th those days are so long gone, unless you're Taylor Swift or whatever. But for the 99.9% .9 of other bands on major label deals... You know, they're just getting crushed. I feel, and I don't know how they monetize it anymore. How do you make money? And I know we've had this conversation, like, how does a band make money when nobody buys music? And and if nobody's buying music to fill the coffers of a record company and those coffers then pay for you to tour, how do you go out and tour? How do you go out and do 250 dates a year that you need to do to to build a buzz when you you can't, who the hell can afford to go out for 250 dates a year? You know, if if you can't afford to even live and eat, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what the what it looks like. Probably YouTube is something in there. You know, like some way to monetize YouTube. That's the new MTV. And but I don't know. I mean, it's what do you think? My 
perspective with the band stuff. I think that's a big part of the reason why Greywalker is where it is. I think that there's this understanding amongst the band that we know that what it would take for us to be able to, you know, do Greywalker full time, given everything else, it's, it's not possible. So, you know, taking a look in the mirror and being like, you know, what do I really want to do? Well, okay. I want to be in a band. I want to play shows. I want to be able to hang out with my best friends. It's like, we could still do all of those things without pushing this full time because it's also like, well, outside of the band, we have school and houses and families and children and you know know, the things that honestly matter in life and those are the things the the, the things that you know that that's that's the end goal type shit you know like that you you want to work towards having a a good healthy life right and i think for us being a heavy metal band in our 30s you know there's no way for us to really have that same healthy life if we were to tour full time it's super unfortunate if we had that opportunity fuck yes but there's just no way for us to do it i mean we go out of town we do our weekend runs and things like that and the band breaks even you know we make but we're keeping the we're being very realistic you know we're thinking about okay like if we're gonna have to rent a van for this weekend how much is that gonna cost okay so how many shows are we playing then Make sure we got to make this much money. Make sure we bring this much merch. Have have we played this place before? Yes. Okay, but we have all the same merch that we had the last time we played. Shit, we should have a new shirt. You know, like yeah. thinking about those kinds of things. And like, so we the band does make money. We haven't put any of our own money into anything in a couple years now. Like that's great. That's just cool. because, but I mean, like we're doing everything. We're not, you know, producing thousands of copies of albums or we're not driving thousands of miles for shows, but we're doing what we can with what we can and keeping it like positive and still like it's growing like it's a slow thing, but it's it's working. Uh, So we're happy with it. I don't know what other bands do. I think there are some bands I know that just grind. They're just on the road nonstop. Like, you know, they, they don't have homes. They might not have families. You know, it's just like. The home is the road. And I guess like it's really easy to uh, romanticize that lifestyle. And for some people, I think they're into it. But for me, it's like I don't even know if I would want that life. Well, if you're 25, that's a lot more appealing than if you're 35. Yeah. You know, and and that's not to say that uh, like at 35, I wouldn't be wanting to be on tour. But there has to be there has to be an end game. You know, if you're going to do 200 shows in a year and you're 35. Yeah, you know, there something has to. You have to something has to have happened at the end of that. Like you know, oh, I brought home enough money after two hundred shows to live for six months or a year until we do two hundred more shows next year. Like, I can't come home with twenty seven dollars in my pocket after being gone for mm-hmm. a year. But um, to answer your questions, I realized that I kind of sidestepped that about bands making money. I think the ability to self monetize now is what is being very uh very financially beneficial for bands mm-hmm. you know what i mean like just even on the i think about where gray walker is like with streaming you know what i mean we made like 500 bucks off spotify last year mm-hmm. we don't have a whole lot of plays on spotify mm-hmm. you know what i mean I, I can't imagine how much money like say somebody it's actually getting like millions of hits 
on yeah. Spotify that's an independent artist. They're just making off of that. And then that's not even including like, oh, money they might be getting from iTunes or Bandcamp Apple or music, other, yeah, all like those other things. Like yeah. there is like, I feel like if you're on a label, you're probably not making anything from that. But if you're independently distributing your own music, I think you can make like a nice chunk of money for just stuff just existing online. Mm -hmm. And then you combine that with like, you know merchandising and playing shows and again if you're an independent artist that's okay well it's like i'm my own manager i'm my own label so you know you own this, your merch you own yeah, your publishing you, know, you own everything you know maybe this you know this couple hundred bucks from the show that's go that's that's to us we don't have to split that with anybody mm -hmm. but and i think there are people like that that do exist that are probably managing pretty okay i agree and and I, I don't particularly know exactly what the ins and outs or the you know the nuts and bolts of that is, but obviously bands are going to still make music. People are going to still consume music. Someone's got to figure out some way to earn a living doing it. Maybe you know what earning a living everyone's standard of earning a living is. That's totally another thing different. too. Yeah, and um, um, someone's going to figure it out, and someone I'm sure you know, you know it, it's occurring right now. Um, but I I think one of the benefits too of of where we are right now is technology, you know, like we're sitting in your recording studio, you can make a Sykes record here in your room. You don't have to go out and, you know, spend 60 days in some other room at, you know, like in the old days, you were going to go to A&M Records and spend, you know, two months in A&M Records at 2000 bucks a day. There's, there's a part of me though, that as much as I'm 100%. I always tell people if you need to get your own recording set up, even if you don't do final products there, I think anybody that's a musician or any band should be able to demo stuff out and be able to like really listen to it back, have that, have that ability to kind of sketchbook out all of your ideas. Listening back is critical. Yeah. Go ahead. You're going to say something, but there's part of me, like we're talking about all of these, uh, seminal metal songs before. Right. And yeah. about how like, there's like this just traditional format of music uh, that, and all that stuff, those weren't recorded in houses. Those were recorded in studios yeah. with producers and engineers. And there's a part they of were, me that wonders like, yeah. you know, is that what's missing in a lot of music? Cause like a lot of these younger bands are recording their own music and that's great. I'm not saying that it's bad, but just having that voice of the producer to really like kind of trim the fat on stuff and really help shape bands to create great songs i wonder if there's an element of that that's missing in modern music i think so uh, two things one professional engineers guys who have made it you know 50 records in their day they know how to make records sound good just at the, getting the tones level yeah and, you know and, and different producers do different things sometimes an engineer makes the whole record and the producer's just overseeing the whole thing sometimes the producer's in there with his hands on the board like an engineer it's it's always different but a good producer and a good engineer combo, they make a good sounding record. It sounds good. And you know, and and you can count on it. And they're gonna make decisions on the songs too. The producer is it it's gonna probably make that song more accessible. And you know, that little part that you know that your girlfriend said she likes so much that you know, it kind of gives you a boner. Yeah. That, that really nobody else gives a shit about, you can lose that part. You're, everyone's gonna still think you're rad. It's cool. Just but that's that's trim the fat there. Uh-huh. And that's that's the conversation that a producer will have in pre-production. He's gonna tighten that song up. And and not in a way that's trying, especially if it's a if it's a if it's a really cool producer, like a guy like Rick Rubin. He's not just, gonna go in and tell 
red hot chili peppers that they need to sound more like Johnny Cash or he's not going to sure. tell Johnny Cash. You need to sound more like Slayer. You know, like would, he's going to go in there and say, you know, the thing you guys do really good. The thing that's really awesome about you is these 10 things. Let's do more of the 10 things that make you guys kick ass and unique. And and these other 10 things that you were kind of like throwing in there, those aren't really adding anything. They're, they're not making any better. And they're actually kind of diluting what it is that you do. Sure. Let's focus on the good, trim the not so good, make you a better version of what you are already good at doing. And a good producer will go in and do that. And so, yes, I think a producer... Somebody who's going to be the advocate of the final listener versus the advocate of the guitar player's ego uh-huh. is going to make, he's going to lead to a better, uh, at least a tighter Potentially song better. arrangement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it always, it's super helpful to have that outside opinion. I was going to bring up Rick Rubin a moment ago. I don't know how familiar you are with the Mars Volta discography. A little bit. But he did their first full length album. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to do their second album, I remember hearing lore that, they wanted to do it with Rick Rubin, but he was like, no, you guys know what you're doing. You know, you guys should just do this yourselves because you have your own thing. And their second album is, it's good, but it's like, it's really uncontrolled. I feel it. There's like this, there's, they self-produced, I believe most of their records after that. But that one album that Rick Rubin did, like there's a, a control in the songs. It's like, this had to have been his influence kind of, helping guide them yeah, just on keeping some it, things. Just keeping it in this yeah. area right here. I mean, like, it's still pretty fucking out there, but it's just like, it's it's tamed in a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like, but it was like they were getting ready to like throw another, like another splash of hot sauce in the pot. <laughs> but he grabbed their, he's like, no, it's yeah. good. You had, it's just right. It's just right. Yeah. But without him in the room, they just went, ah, fucking More hot nuts. Sauce, yeah. yeah. Fucking crazy. I would love to, that's one thing I've never done with any project I've ever done is like, you know, work with a producer that understands like what we're trying to do. But it's like I've never it's always been super underground, I guess. And there's always been that selfish part of me, too. It's like, oh, fuck it. Who knows better than me? But, you know, in my older years and I've already like I've already how many albums have I technically produced myself? You know, I have a good handful of them. Right. So it could be fun down the line to like work with somebody but then that that's it changes the whole ball game of what you're doing like do you even have the resources to do that as an as an underground band it's a, it's a whole different whole different thing i have a good some good friends of ours that work with a producer that we play shows with and i think like they're you know having some fundraiser show to fund their album you know they mm-hmm. they trying to raise like 10 grand or something like that and it's like fuck can't imagine spending that much money on just recording an album like you know but it's money <laughs> well spent there's stuff it sounds great you know yeah, so yeah. i mean if, if you spend ten thousand dollars on a record that's obviously it's not very much in the grand scheme of things yeah it's a lot coming out of your pocket you know if you're a musician and you don't have a lot of money but you know but if but it you know it, it's worth it if you if you if when it's done if you go god damn that's a record that sounds like a million dollar record yeah. we spent 10 grand on I it. would love being able to you know go into the studio and just do what I do you know what i mean like go perform listen to playbacks Sounds that's good. That's offer. The, yeah, you know the dream, the fucking dream. That's right? the only way I know how to make records. So, <laughs> like, I, 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 I am, I am probably terrible at making a record where it's like, okay, cool, we got to do this whole thing in two days. 
Like that's just not, I don't know how to do that really. I'm not like as a drummer and a performer, as a musician, every time I've been in the studio, it's, it's slow pace. And as an engineer and a producer, it's always, you take your time, you know? So like when, you know, if if it's going to take 45 or 60 days to make a record, well, that's what it's going to take 45 or 60 days to make a record. And you're going to track drums over the course of a week. And you're yeah. gonna, you know, you're gonna spend a day getting tones, and you're gonna sit back, and you're gonna go to lunch, and you're gonna come back, and you listen to some recording that you did, and say, "Yeah, that sounds really good. I think we can make that snare tone. Let's move that snare mic a little bit. Let's futz this around." Yeah, I hate how tense it can be, and I think that was a big part of the reason why we decided to self-record the majority of the Grey Walker album was because we were trying to avoid that. But the thing that sucked was that Joey was still like, "I just want to get my fucking drum parts done," so he recorded all. It was like an eight-hour session. He did the whole album. I mean, he did it. It's it sounds good, but there was also some parts in the album where it was like, oh fuck, that kick pattern wasn't right. Mm-hmm. So when they were we had to change guitar parts and things like that. Because yeah. it was just it was kind of rushed. But outside of that, you know, the other guys were able to really take their time kind of recording everything and fine-tuning stuff. But also having that ability to take all the time that you want because it's in your house can also be not the best thing. It can be rabbit holey. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. can go down your own rabbit uh-huh. hole. Yeah. So that's that's where a producer, even if it's just where somebody who's just gonna say, Hey, you've yeah, you've done 10 more passes of this, and none of them are any better than the first one. They're different, but none of them are any better. Yeah. And so you just at some point you go, Yeah, that's that's the pass. It sounds good. Mm-hmm. It's good. I was when I when I did the Sykes record, I was really um, adamant about us not tracking more than two songs for anything in a day. Like mm-hmm. so we did a lot of just demo sessions. We probably, I probably recorded that album four times to be completely honest with mm-hmm. you with all, it's like demoing for that project is literally exactly the same as recording. So it was in this room. It was mm-hmm. just different tones, but we pretty much recorded the whole album four times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but always like in those, when everything was finally in place is very much like, okay, we're just going to work on these two things. And if we have more time, then that's fine. Like we'll do something else. And then for me with like vocals, I'll track vocals for one song a day. And that's it. Cause I just want to be able to take my time, focus on this stuff, listen to it back, step away from it instead of like, oh, well I have the day off. So I'm going to record five fucking tracks in one day. Especially with vocals. Cause your yeah. voice is going to get tired. Mm-hmm. It's going to get, you're going to get worn out. It's yeah. not like a drummer. You know, you, you can play drums as long as you've got the stamina to play drums, mm-hmm. but you're, with your voice, it starts to go, then you're shot. And also just making sure I'm actually in the, I'm sure there was a day or two where it's like, I, I don't, I'm not in the mood to do this. So I just mm-hmm. didn't. It is really cool though when you're talking about the dream. It's pretty cool to be able to go into these big rad studios and and camp out. It it is really fun. (laughs) I bet. And and you know whether you're a musician camping out and making your record, or whether you're producing or engineering a record and just just camp out. It's really it's really a a luxury. And Mm -hmm. when I was doing that, I I never took it for granted. I would we 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 would be doing sessions at we worked a lot at a studio called Henson in in Hollywood, which was the used to be AM studios. Okay. It's like we are the world, you know, it's like <laughs> one of those mega studios like sure. record plant, you uh-huh. know, AM, which is Henson now. Just a mega studio. So at any given time, like we'd be in one room and and um 
you know, like literally the stone. We're mixing a record in the mix room. Stones are across the hall. Mariah carries in another studio. No shit. And so like you're walking down the hall and there's Mick Jagger. You say hi to him and Fuck. just shit like that. Like, <laughs> like, so I'd be like, this is pretty damn cool. Like I I'm get, here. I'm in it. Right? I, yeah. I, I get to, I get to navigate this world. It's pretty darn fun. Fuck. Um, <laughs> so a question that I, I wanted to ask you earlier when we were talking about um, like developing new bands. Mm -hmm. And uh, how a lot of the bands that you saw go through that process, like things didn't quite work out. Is there anything in particular that was like a common thread with those bands when it came to it? Not like the all the stars not aligning or is it just always something a little different? Well, sometimes it did work out, but um, I guess I mean, working out is like that's subjective, like what is working it out? But a lot of times it really comes down. I think it comes down to material. You know, because uh, like I said, I didn't work professionally. I, I, I stopped working professionally in that capacity in 2008. Mm -hmm. So it's still a different record industry. That was 10 years ago. So, you know, I still develop stuff now. That's the thing I like to do now. But as far as developing to go to a major label, like specifically, this is why we were doing this. Yeah. It was a different game then. You know, labels were still looking for bands, you know, to put on the on the radio and and it was really only the beginning of the 360s fu over deal um so they were looking for bands to plug in to their machine still yeah but i think mainly it, a lot of times it was just the material just wasn't quite it just didn't quite click like the material wasn't quite there mm -hmm. that makes sense and short of getting in there and just writing songs for bands which i'm not a i'm not particularly good at that my old partner bob is good at that but i i'm not really the, the, i'm not the guy who's going to go in and say you know, give me an acoustic guitar here. Change that to this. Put it to this. Ba -dum, ba -dum, it's a hit. Grab the tambourine. Yeah, like <laughs> like that's not. I I I wish I had that talent because I would probably my publishing checks would look a lot different these days. Sure, but but uh, but that's just that's not really what I do. But I think a lot of times it was the material you that know, makes sense. Th those bands, you know, if a band says they want to be the next Nickelback, they got to have songs that are gonna that the label thinks is gonna that they can say, oh, I can totally hear that in you know contemporary rock format, blah blah blah, whatever the case may be. You know, and, and I know we can plug that into our our machine yeah like that spits it out and it'll jam it into radio and it'll work and 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 you know and i think a lot of times the bands just didn't have the material i think that that is you you answered a a good question or a, you gave me a response that i was hoping you would in a sense because that's something that looking in the mirror being very self-reflective of like you know why i feel like when it comes to my projects sykes and gray walker um, I feel like there's a lot of things that we do right and that we do really well. And I'm very confident in that. And when it comes down to like, okay, like why just, why isn't this working? There's always this voice in my head. It's just like the songs just aren't good enough. It's not that they're bad. They're just not on that level yeah. to really grab people. And I think it's like, that's a hard thing to kind of admit or say out loud to be like, well, but you, I, I'm trying to say it in a sense of like, okay, well, this is something that, I see a problem and now I need to work on it. You know, I think it's real easy for us to be in this thing where it's like, okay, well, cool. We have these songs and then like, okay, well, let's spend some time. Let's make a video and do this cool artwork and do all this cool promotional stuff and this fun packaging, all this stuff that I have a lot of fun doing stuff that I actually think I'm a lot better at than making music. I think <laughs> I'm better at the other end of stuff. It's almost like sometimes I wonder if I just write music because I want to 
put out like a fun product. Like I'm a lot better at the marketing than the writing, maybe. But I want to get, I need to get better at it. I don't think I'm terrible, but it could be better. And I think that that's where moving forward, me personally, I need to improve is just like focusing on writing better songs, which was like something I tried to do a whole lot with this new Sykes album in particular, just being very more like, I always found myself being very weak in hooks and choruses and catchy stuff. I always wanted to do like, get like more weird with my electronics. And I really kind of stepped that, pushed that back with well, this new body of material. When you said they're like, get weird with electronics, like for a Sykes record, that's the equivalent of, of shredding more riffs on absolutely, a metal record. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and, and then yeah. that goes back to what I, what we were talking about you know, a little while ago, where it was, I think I think in some instances shredding and that kind of stuff is a compensation for just not being able to write very good hooks, and, and that's how I feel about a lot. Of, I mean, to cut you off, I'm so sorry, but uh, metal bands that have like oh, it's like part into part into part into part. It's like oh, you just can't write good songs, so you're just like you're gonna smash all this stuff together, label it as a song progressive, yeah, and then yeah. you know some people will think like, oh they're. And they're some, they're and, so they're they're challenging the status quo songwriting. It's so avant garde. And you know what? And some people and and for some people they are, and some yeah. people love that. But really, in the end of the day, ninety nine point nine percent of people really do want hooks, even if they're metalheads. Um, you know, there's only a small percentage. And hey, if that's what you're into, do it better than everybody else. Yeah. If you want to write progressive stuff and, you know, just really push that envelope, well, you've got to push beyond everyone else. Go for it. I mean, go all the fuck in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and and I think that's really about intention. Um, if that's what you intend to do, well, then, then do it with your best intention. And if your intention is to reach more people, then you need to say, well, you know, what, ab what about our writing? is limiting us from reaching more people. <laughs> it's it's always really funny whenever say somebody that's uh I don't have a specific example but I'm sure this person exists. We'll say default person <laughs> in technical death metal band <laughs> that will simultaneously complain like, "Well, I don't understand why everybody likes 21 Pilots or Bruno Mars or anything like that." Like, I don't get it, you know? Like, why why isn't my shit you know, why don't people listen to more stuff like what I'm doing? It's like, well, listen to what you're doing. It sounds like a murder scene. Like <laughs> it's not, it's a, what you're catering to is a very small demographic of people. But then simultaneously, those same people, if there is a band that's kind of like in their realm or a bigger metal band that gets, that starts to get big, that might open up the doors for more people to enjoy the kind of music that they're making. It's like, oh, fuck that band. They're fucking selling out, you know? Where, it always blew my mind, like all the shit that uh, Slipknot got. I understood like the gimmick thing, which I thought was cool. I was a teenager. Sure, I think it's but fun. I love Kiss they, and I Alice Cooper. They really like, in terms of like extreme metal, they really pushed the envelope and I think introduced a lot of intensity to a wide appeal of young kids that never heard anything like that. Yeah. And I don't think they get enough fucking credit for it. I really don't. Well, I give them credit totally. And, you know, and so, but I can see that, that, I mean, it's just kind of jealous, you know, bands get jealous. And, and, and yeah. when, when I meet guys like that, I hate to say it, but I really kind of run for the run for the hills. <laughs> when, when, yeah, when I meet a musician same. who is talking smack about other bands and, to me, that's 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 an insecurity that's going to show up everywhere in their music, um, and and it's almost it's almost for sure they're going to fail. 
because they won't do the thing. They are already saying, these guys doing the thing that we want to do that are doing it good, mm-hmm. they're selling out. They're really already saying, we don't even want to do that. Like, that would be failing. It would be failing to succeed. So I, I'm like, uh, uh, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you guys. Uh-huh. On the other hand, bands that like, maybe they're the heaviest band in the world, but they come in and they're like, dude, have you heard the new fucking song, the new Bruno Mars track? That is fucking awesome. Oh, yeah. And you're like, yeah, these guys just love music and they just happen to be in a super, they're really good at being in a super heavy band and they just like music. And then I'm like, I totally want to work with those guys because they are not going to put a ceiling over their success. They're not going to shoot down a simple riff that is really fucking hooky, and you know because it's not you know it's it's too simple. They're, uh-huh. they're going to write good fucking kick ass songs, and and I would be ten times more interested in working with those guys than somebody who's just going to be bitter and small and talking smack and and, and that that's going to show up in their songwriting. They're just going to be so narrow. They're not going to try anything good, and then they're not, probably not going to want any input from a guy like me anyway. Because what the fuck do I know? You know, you're you're some old dude. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, so. I would just run from the hill, run just fast as I could go away from those guys. Oh, yeah. It's nice talking to you, dudes. Um, it's the peace same, out. It's the same thing for me. It's like, I, I don't, I just it's like, grow up, I guess, in a sense. Like, it's, well, it's, it's, well, it, I just don't understand why you can't. It's so hard for some people to accept that other people enjoy things that they don't, and that it's okay. Like, I might not be the biggest fan of, I don't know, throwing any band, like Nickelback. Yeah. Whatever. A lot of people talk shit on Nickelback. I've never once in my life said Nickelback is the worst band in the world. I think they get a lot of undeserving flack. It's like, no, they're a really good rock band. Maybe, you know, they've written some songs that I think are a little corny. I've never been a fan of them, but they're really fucking good at what they do. They're good at what they do. I would never say anything bad about them or anybody that listens to them. Like anybody that listens to them, that's like you taking their family to go to those shows and things like that. Those are people that love that music and they're exposing people to music. Sure. It means something to them. So like, I'm not going to be like, look down on somebody that likes that or any, anything. I don't even like the most ridiculous, like hot, uh, rapper of the week that like some 13 year old kid likes. I'm not going to be like, Oh fuck these new rappers. Like that's silly. Like Mm -hmm. I just, I never want to be, that person that annoyed me when I was 13 <laughs> yeah. talking shit on like the new upcoming bits. Cause I dealt with it a lot when I was growing up and like, like, Oh fuck Slipknot, you know, being at metal shows and like people making fun of my Slipknot shirt. Like, ah, fuck you. Yeah. But then like who at that time period, I'm just curious at that time period when you're wearing a Slipknot shirt and you know, you're young and, and people are going fuck Slipknot, who were they into instead? Like who would have been, who would have been a viable alternative to Slipknot? Do you even know who that would have been at that time? At that time, probably people, uh, I would, for example, when I was into Slipknot, I had some friends that were into some more like Cannibal Corpse. Okay. Uh, the more they were already kind of tapped into the, the more extreme stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Cannibal Corpse or the, some black metal stuff, uh, Emperor. Mm-hmm. cradle of filth yeah okay uh, you know and then like you got your like napalm death and dying fetus and like and those all guys that. but those bands have been around for a while yeah so they had already so, yeah, like, like they were already there they, like there was and i but the thing was like i liked all that stuff too you know uh but 
for me, I just, I just, I loved everything about Slipknot. I loved the whole, the whole packaging. I thought it was fucking great. It was oh, just like, sure. I thought they were really cool. And to me, it was kind of, it, it, it was, it was a great example of, of how the music industry, you know, kind of goes, it goes way over here to the right, way over here to the left, you know, bam, bam. And every time that it goes to back to another place where it was before, it's, it's like what it was before with a big new twist. And so like when Slipknot came up, I'm like, oh my God, this is so rad. This is like the new Marilyn Manson, which was the new Alice Cooper. Yeah. You know, like, and like, I could see like these new iterations of the same thing. Like, oh, I get it. That's totally cool. I love it. That's right. We're, the other thing that was really cool about them too, is that there's, there's not many other bands that have, that nobody sounds like that. Like I can think of one band that's, gotten kind of bigger in the past decade that almost kind of sounds like Slipknot, but not really. Like they they just had this thing that was it was so uniquely them because I feel that like the songwriting was so good and they were so tapped into what they were doing and just how dynamic of a vocalist Corey Taylor is. It just yeah, gave totally. them this unique sound that you couldn't emulate even if you fucking wanted to. I I feel the same way about like System of a Down. Like they were just that was them. Yeah. They did their fucking thing. They did it really good. And even Another you, Rick Rubin production. Yeah, and if you wanted to fucking try to do that, like you you couldn't. No. There was just there was like it was like the it was like the secret sauce, you know what I mean? Like that recipe wasn't getting out. Like you could listen to those songs all you want and try to write it, but unless it just came from this general internal chaos that was uniquely them corn had that too like when they first came out like they had their thing like what the hell what are these guys doing what's this all about and jonathan davis singing and just the whole thing like wow that's a that's out of left field and and because it's out of left field and it's brand new kids are loving it doesn't sound like their older brother's band that he liked uh-huh. or the band that his dad likes you know, it's like that's their version of a, what a new, you know, a, a new metal band was going to sound like. And it's like, see totally why those bands were big like that. One last reset. Mm-hmm. All right. Feeling pretty good. I'm just going to let that roll. All right. Ugh. Yeah, I, it's, that was, it was interesting. I feel, for me in my particular come up mentioned that growing up around like the, the classics because of my dad. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I was like 12, 13, that's when like corn and Slipknot and all that stuff started happening. So I loved that stuff, but what was actually interesting. was like, that was the stuff that kind of pulled me back into metal because mm-hmm. I went from being like Iron Maiden being my favorite band to Green Day putting out Dookie. Mm-hmm. And I was in like third or fourth grade. Uh-huh. So how am I not going to love Green Day yeah. in like fourth grade? Like I loved it. Well, that's fr- a great record. All, it is. is awesome. All my friends were into it and it, it was just very, you know, then from there it was like the Smashing Pumpkins happened. And then like that's it's so funny. So like that's my trajectory of favorite bands as a kid. It goes Iron Maiden, Green Day, Smashing Pumpkins, Slipknot. That's a good, that's a, that's, that's, that's all over the place. And, it, and it, 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 it's like to this day, that's still like, I still, I love all of those bands, but like Slipknot was the one that like, okay, it, it brought me back. Well, no, actually, sorry, Corn Slipknot. Corn was the important step. It was Smashing Pumpkins, Corn Slipknot. Mm-hmm. So 
Corn and then definitely Slipknot was what brought me back into like, oh, metal. But then the Smashing Pumpkins never left and the Green Day stuff never left. Like all of that still existed within me. Yeah, it all still stays in your blood. And yeah. you, when you write, you're drawing, whether you even realize it or not, hopefully you're drawing on all those things that were so important to you in the past. Because all of your favorite artists, and this is something I talk about a lot with young bands, is is all of your favorite artists that came before you likely liked a lot of stuff that doesn't sound anything like what they what they play. You know, like they have a real broad a uh, broad influences. So like if you're a metal band, you know, and and you know and your your favorite band is, well, I don't know, I'm just going to I'm just going to use a guy like John 5. Like um like I was in a band with John Five, and I produced with John Five Records. He's a buddy of mine, but anyway, you, know, you think like Manson, and you think you know uh, Rob Zombie, but that guy loves like Kiss and like the most poppy music in the world, and Michael Jackson. Yeah, that's what he. That's literally what he grew up playing. I feel like you have to like that shit to be able to write those kinds of songs. Yeah, and if you don't, if you think about it this way. Uh, like, like if you only if your influences, if what you're doing is influenced by one generation of something before you, and all you listen to is that thing, then your your wheelhouse of like what your creativity is going to be is going to be from here to here. That's all I listen to. I I play right there and I listen to that. And then when you go to play and write, you're not going to push your boundaries. You never do. You never push your boundaries ever, no matter how wide they are. You stay in a comfort zone. Well, your comfort zone is this narrow little itty bitty thing you're never going to break out of it but if you like if you like and learn how to play music that is like from this way over here that has nothing to do with the thing you do to way over here that has nothing to do and all of a sudden your wheelhouse is super duper wide mm -hmm. when you go to think about ideas it's not going to be this narrow thing it's going to be way over here and then you can rein it in to get it to where it is but it's going to have this wide open creative expanse at the base of it that you're going to be able to just draw on anything from the Beatles to Pink Floyd to Zeppelin to Black Sabbath, and you're going to throw it all in a pot someplace, and it's going to come out sounding a little more well-rounded as opposed to so rigid and tight. I think that a lot of people, well, not a lot, but some people probably just don't analyze or think about it like that. I think, and also for some people, maybe they're totally content, like they're playing in a band because they want to be, you know. X hardcore band. That's yeah. it. I like I, I like this kind of music. I just want to make this kind of music. That's all I'm into. And I guess if that's your intention, that's great. But I would definitely urge anybody that is a musician, if they've never asked themselves, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, really, like, why am I doing this? If you've never asked yourself that, I think you should. I think people, anybody should do that. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I kind of looked at the, at 2019 and I said to myself, this is going to be the year of why. Like, okay. like if I make a decision, why am I making that decision? The other camera died, so we're going to do this. We're killing it right now. <laughs> Yeah, so that's I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I'm really it's really resonating with me right now. But even when I'm talking to young artists and I'm working with them, I I I usually kind of have a handful of form questions that I ask everybody, and there is no right answer to, to these questions ever. You know, I always say like, well, you know, what what do you want to accomplish? Like, what is it? What's your end game? 
and and there's no right answer. You know, it's not like, oh, you need to answer the right answer for me so that sure. I'm interested in working with you. Yeah. Or like, no, just literally tell me what's your end game? Like, what do you want to accomplish? Because that's the only way that I can help somebody get to their end game. I got to clearly know what is it that you want to do? And if you're a, and if what you want to do is be the kid who plays in the hardcore band and never really does anything but that, okay, well, cool. Well, then let's let's make decisions that support you being the kid who's in the hardcore band, and that's all you ever do. Mm -hmm. Let's only make those decisions. Let's let's focus it on that. Yeah, let's not waste our time. Let's not what yeah on doing things that don't like, that, that aren't going to get you there. Yeah. yeah. So, but if your desire is to be the next Nickelback, well, then let's make decisions to make you the next Nickelback. And if your decisions is to, you know, to do something different, this or that, well, let's make decisions. Now that we know that that's the end game, let's make our decisions to support that. And we any decision that doesn't support it, we can push it off to the side. We don't have to worry about it. And you get way more, you get to your end game 10 times faster. And so I think uh, in general, musicians should really ask themselves that a lot. What's the end game here? What am I really, you know, you know, is your friend, you know, is the, the kid who, you know, like the, the textbook case, who's in the progressive metal band, complaining about another progressive metal band that's bigger than them. Well, what's your end game? Like, do you want to be where that guy is and you're just jealous that he's there? Which if that's the case, stop. It's just eating you up. It's just making you pissed off. And if, if that is where you wanted to be, then cool. Then let's shoot for that. Let's sure. shoot for that spot up there. I do, I do think... Uh, jealousy can be a pretty uh, a pretty powerful fuel for some people, though. But is it jealousy, or is it anger, or is it proving, or is it jealousy, though? Yeah, yeah. I guess because I, I think, think there's a lot of things that might fall yeah. into that category, but I think there's some other fuel, like you know, like proving your, you know, proving that you are as good as you, you know, people say you suck, fuck you, your dad, you'll never amount to anything. Uh -huh. Like, fuck you. Yes, I will. That I'll show you. Wrong, yeah. yeah. Like versus like, those guys have nicer yeah, cars than yeah, me. Fuck that guy. Jealousy as much as it is just, uh, it's just like spite almost. Like, yeah. oh, fuck you. I'll show you. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and, and I think that that can be a huge motivator, and, uh -huh. you know, and, and, and for better or worse, it'll, it'll get you active. You'll make some decisions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hopefully they're good ones. Yeah. And that is all, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. It was a lot of fun sitting down chatting with Sid. Again, super long conversation, which was why we had to split it up. Also, I don't know if you noticed some of the issues with the camera. Uh, if anything, this episode was proof of why I could use an extra engineer here in the room while I'm recording these episodes. So uh, I don't know if you're somebody that would be interested in coming by and, you know, helping me record audio and record video while I'm doing these episodes, I could really use it. I can't pay you anything uh, until I have a sponsor or something. Um, I don't know. Maybe you could sponsor the podcast, but instead of paying me money, you could sponsor the show by also being an engineer. That's probably a niche thing to ask for. There's probably like one person in Pittsburgh that has a business that could also engineer the podcast that would be interested in doing that. I don't know. If you're out there, let me know. Otherwise, I'll be back again next week with another episode. Same time, same place, same channel. You know the drill. My name is Sykes. Start the beat. 2019. Whoop, whoop. Thanks for listening. Yeah.
cool. 